We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today, the Reverend Dr. Sarah Griffith Lund returns to Encountering Silence. She is the senior pastor of First Congregational United Church of Christ in Indianapolis and serves the United Church of Christ on a national level as the Minister for Disabilities and Mental Health Justice. She holds degrees from Trinity University, Princeton Theological Seminary, Rutgers University, and McCormick Theological Seminary. Sarah Griffith Lund received the Bob and Joyce Dell Award for Mental Health Education from the United Church of Christ Mental Health Network in 2015 for her outstanding authorship and leadership in breaking the silence about mental illness in family and in church and offering healing and hope. Her latest book is Blessed Union, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness and Marriage. She is also the author of Blessed Are the Crazy, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness, Family, and Church. And she maintains a blog at her website, www.sarahgriffithlund.com. Pastor Sarah, welcome back to Encountering Silence. It's so good to be back with you all. So it's been about nine months since our last conversation. How have you been? How are you now? We spoke last in 2020, which was a year we could not imagine surviving, yet here we are in 2021, and already people are ready for 2021 to be over, right? Um, so I'm just really mindful that um, anyone who lives in the United States right now is probably experiencing some trauma, and so I think a lot about trauma and in the work I do with mental health justice. Um, in my tradition, we think about historically underrepresented groups. And for us, it's people of color, LGBTQ folks, and people living with disabilities and mental health challenges. So I would say if you are part of a historically underrepresented group, the events of the past year or so have most likely caused some real personal trauma and so I'm mindful of the ministries uh, before us and the work of healing that we are all called to do if we really want to survive this time in our lives. Sarah, both of your books have the phrase breaking the silence in the subtitle. And I know a lot of your work, I mean, as you're expressing now, really centers on reducing stigma, breaking the silence. And can you speak a little bit more to just the importance of, of both those things and maybe the difference between reducing stigma and breaking silence. We've come a long way in our understanding of mental health, mental illness, um, mental health challenges, um, brain diseases, brain disorders. And one thing that we know is that the biggest barrier to receiving treatment, care and support is not money. It's not access to quality health care. It is the stigma. 
So no matter your color, your income, your education, no matter where you're socially located, the stigma and shame associated with mental health challenges is the number one barrier to getting help. And research shows that it's an average of seven years from the onset of symptoms until people get help. And seven years is a long time to live in pain and to live in silence. And so I believe we are called in this movement of mental health justice to break the silence so that people more quickly get access to the care and support that is ready and waiting for them. And this goes for all ages. We know that children and youth are struggling with symptoms of mental illness, but they don't want to disappoint the adults in their lives. And so we know that teens are texting and talking to each other about not being able to sleep, thoughts of suicide, but they're afraid to tell adults. And when I talk to youth groups, it breaks my heart that the youth told me that they don't wanna tell the adults in their church about what their lives are really like because the adults still look at them as cute, precious, sweet, perfect little children. And they feel like they would disappoint the folks in the church if they really knew what was going on in their lives. So breaking the silence for me is associated very much with saving lives. This is new information for me. Thanks for, thanks for giving me some insight. Of course, I don't have access to teenagers and to young adults. All the work I do is with adults. Wow. Wow, that's heartbreaking. And what would you say, not only to parents, but to grandparents, to any adults who do interact with children? How can we offer those opportunities to break the silence? What, what do we need to be doing? Well, what we know from childhood de development is that children learn what it means to be human by watching adults, their parents, their grandparents, aunts and uncles. And so it's really on us as adults, mature people to role model what it means to be authentic and vulnerable about our own mental health. Sadly, what children witness are adults wearing a mask, smiling when inside we're weeping. We are silent. We put on a happy face and we tell our children to be happy, especially girls. Be sweet, be happy, be cheerful. Go give that person a hug, forcing them to be things they're not. And it's no surprise that depression and anxiety and suicidality are increasing among girls ages eight to 11. And so what we can do, each one of us right now, is to be in touch with our own sense of mental health every day. Where are we on the spectrum? And to articulate that and to role model, not just to children, but to everyone, what does it look like to talk about this? We don't know how to do it and we're afraid to do it. We don't wanna be judged, ostracized, thought that we are unworthy. And the research I've done over the years, um, it was said among Christians, they rather have leprosy than mental illness. That's what stigma looks like. It strikes me how much breaking the silence and what you just said about modeling and being open and being aware also feels to use a theological term for a moment, you know, very much like breaking idols. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
the, the, the sense of who we think we are and who we think we are supposed to be and how we're supposed to be, you know, like in the Christian church, I'm supposed to be this perfect Christian or I'm supposed to show joy. It's a joyful faith. I'm supposed to have this love. I'm supposed to have this. And then these teenagers, as you were saying, and adults as well, are, are afraid to say, well, that's not reality at the moment. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm experiencing. And sadly, it's simply in the air we breathe in the Christian tradition. This sense that there is a lack of faith on the part of someone who's depressed and a lack of prayer. And if only they would read the Bible more. Hmm. And I heard a brilliant neurologist say, um, you would never tell someone who comes in for an eye exam to get a stronger prescription lens, oh, honey, just throw those glasses in the trash and pray. We want to say that our brain can benefit from the brilliance of scientists and medications, antidepressants, anti-anxiety disorders, antipsychotics, that we can be bipolar and be faithful, that it's okay if our preachers have um, bipolar disorder or attention deficit disorder or eating disorders, and in fact, they do. And the sooner we acknowledge this reality of our own human condition, we uh, will be so much healthier for it. Sarah, I appreciate you talking about the importance of visibility and the importance of how our visibility can kind of create the sense of solidarity and recognition that we're not alone. And in your openness, along with your new work and your new book, Blessed Union, you're doing just that and continuing to reduce stigma and break the silence about mental health and marriage. And can you tell me a little bit about that new book and about um, maybe the impetus for writing it? I wrote my first book, Blessed Are the Crazy, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness, Family and Church, because I was a mess. I was a divided self. I was trying to fit into the tiny size box the church had created for me as a woman, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a leader in the church. And it was when my dad died from mental illness that I felt a call from God to break the silence in order to be a whole person and in order to survive. And so I began to look at my life and look at my family story and to figure out what did I hide from myself. I mean, that's the deepest injury is that we hide parts of our own identity from ourselves. And so there's a sense of coming out to oneself in order to be whole. And so that was the work of my first book. It was really coming out to myself, figuring out who I was created in the image of God and how I became that way. And in my book, I do talk a lot about my father's mental health disability my brother's mental health disability, and my cousin's mental health disability. And I was not yet self-aware of my own mental health challenges. And it was the gift of my marriage where I discovered that I have a mental health challenge that was impacting my marriage. And so it took me several years to write this book, and it was really the unfolding journey of finding healing in my marriage and advocacy in my marriage through personal counseling and couples counseling, where I realized that in order for my marriage to be healthy, my partner and I both had a lot of work to do, but our marriage could thrive and we could be happy even though we might be sad people. 
we could still have a happy marriage. And it was really God's grace that allowed me to be on this journey of discovery. And I realized there weren't any books out there talking about marriages and the true impact of undiagnosed and untreated mental illness in a marriage. But I realized I'm not alone. One in four people live with a mental health challenge. And so if you just think about the math, how many marriages are impacted by mental health challenges? And there's so many that go undiagnosed. And so uh, a lot of our marriages end in divorce, 50%. And it's my hypothesis that so many of those marriages that end in divorce have a dynamic in them that could be so drastically improved if those individuals receive the help, care, and support for their own mental health, in addition to a marriage counselor. But if you look at marriage, marriage counseling books, especially from a Christian perspective, very few of them acknowledge the reality of mental illness in a marriage. And so they give you quick tips and advice about how to have a happy marriage. And it talks about um, things that for me as a person with post-traumatic stress disorder, married to someone with depression and anxiety disorders are really laughable because it talks about things like go out on dates and put the toilet seat down and be thoughtful and make them breakfast and write them poems. And that's just really ridiculous when we know that mental health challenges cause mood disorders, they disrupt communication patterns, they can cause irrational thinking, sleeplessness, anxiousness, irritability, uh, and so that's not going to be fixed by giving roses or writing po love poems. You know, people need medications and they need therapy in order for those marriages to really thrive and be healthy. And so I hope in this book, um, I help shine a light. I help break the silence that um, it's okay to, to talk about these things and that the more we talk about them, the more we realize we're not alone and that there is hope for our marriages. They're not doomed. That we too, depressed and all, can find happiness in our blessed unions. It's such a such a powerful, wonderful uh, message, you know, and I appreciate so much the book and, and this message. If somebody's new, if, if you're breaking the silence for the first time and, you're, and you start to examine your life, your relationships, your family, and you start to realize, well, maybe I have a mental issue that I'm not dealing with. It struck me as you were responding, a lot of the things like anxiety, sleeplessness, et cetera, I mean, that's a lot of people. And, you know, a lot of people, those are kind of like um, symptoms. You know, you ever know you go to a mental, um, a medical website and you say, what are the symptoms? And it seems like you have every disease under the sun because, you know, it's like I have all those symptoms. And then the doctor's like, no. So for mental health, uh, since this is your area, I don't know if this is appropriate, if you feel comfortable answering this, but how do you tell the difference between, hey, I just have sleeplessness or, hey, this might be a symptom and this is why my relationship with my kids and my wife and you know, myself and right? I, I don't know. I just It just struck me because I was hearing you say symptoms and I was like, wow, there's a lot of general symptoms here. So what we know is that during this time of pandemic in 2020 in surveys that's that have been done. Right. Rates of depression and anxiety are doubled. 
Yeah, it makes total sense. And so I think uh, this is what you might call situational. You know, some people have biological factors that contribute to their mental health disorders. In my family, bipolar disorder, scientists believe is hereditary. Oh. Yet there are some mental health challenges that are very much situational. Um, there's a lot of research done about bereavement and grief and how uh, normal it is, how common it is. When you are deeply grieving the death of a loved one, not to be able to sleep or eat, to be irritable, um, to be, have deep, profound sadness, not be able to get out of bed. And that may cause a situational depression. You might be assisted by some medication to get you through that time. Likewise with the pandemic, a lot of us are experiencing situational anxiety, anxious thoughts, worried about the future, hopelessness. And so a wonderful free tool online for all of us is found on Mental Health America's website. I point you there because they are a well-respected organization that has created free online screening tools for about a half a dozen mental health conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, addiction, depression, and anxiety. So you can go there today, do a, a quick screening of yes, no answers. It'll give you a diagnostic, a scale of where you fall in that, and then suggested resources and ways to get help. Mental Health America has a wonderful tool to help you. I think the tools that you just gave me, if I wanted to talk to somebody, this idea, I've never even thought of this idea of like situational versus biological. I never really thought of those terms, and it makes absolutely 100% sense to me. Thank you. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Yeah, I discovered situational depression when my daughter was dying. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and it was funny because I was doing uh, some research work with Emory University, a, a meditation research program. And I went in and they screened me for depression, you know, and I, it was like off the scale and they, they were like worried. And, and uh, you know, and I'm somebody who has worked with a therapist for many years now. And I said, oh, it's situational. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, my daughter's in hospice. And they said, oh, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so yeah, so I've experienced that, you know, and it's, and it's probably as the pandemic has shown, it's probably a lot more common than most people realize. I, I see uh, Pastor Sarah nodding her head, so. Yes, and so that's uh, why this conversation is so important. Uh, folks, you are not alone. About half of America is right there with you. And the good news, which is why I do this work, is that there are people and resources there to support you. A lot of stuff is available free and online. NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, has free support groups that are virtual now. So go to nami.org 
type in your zip code and they'll give you a lot of local resources. I love NAMI because they're the largest grassroots organization for mental health. And they believe um, that there's nothing about us without us. So they train up leaders within their organization who live with mental health conditions that will go out in the community and give free um, talks and lead peer groups. And so that's helped our family. We went through a time in my marriage where we were in a marriage counseling session and there's just this long pause and this long time of silence, which tells you the pregnant pause and how silence can help unearth a deeper reality. Our therapist was in the room, we were in the room and there was this lull in the conversation. And out of that deep pause and that silence, a little voice on the couch next to me talks about thoughts of suicide. And I was shocked. I knew my husband lived with chronic depression and anxiety. He was taking medications for them. He was seeing his own therapist, but I did not know that for the past several months, he was living with thoughts of self-harm. And that when we were on a vacation, he had a plan to end his life. And it terrified me. But thankfully we were in that room and we had that healing silence, that therapeutic silence where the deeper truths can emerge. And it was a very safe place to be real. And so with that information, we then came up with a safety plan. And that's why these conversations are so important. We do not want to admit that many of us live with these thoughts. And some people in this field of suicide and how do we prevent suicide say that we have to be real. We have to be real that kids, teenagers, adults often think about this, but we are afraid to admit it. So admitting it helps us get the support we need. And so my husband, I say this because one of the first things we did was to connect to our local NAMI chapter. And there was a support group that night that the day he revealed to us about his thoughts of self-harm, he went to a support group that night and they were beautiful. They surrounded him with love. They were very concerned about him. He was uh, able to see a new psychiatrist later that week. And what it was, it was a side effect of a new medication he had started that spring. So that's one of the risks we take when we take medications is sometimes a side effect is suicidal ideation. So we need to be aware of that and we need to be on the lookout for it. So if you take a medication or someone you love, then we need to be screening for suicide pretty regularly and just accept that that's a risk that's part of these medications. So thankfully, the good news is that he got off of that med he got on a new medication, and since then, he has not had these thoughts of self-harm. Thank you so much for sharing that story um, with us and, and our listeners. And I, I appreciate how the story reveals what you were talking about earlier, this sense of needing to come out to oneself to be whole, you know, and breaking that silence in that room with your therapist. And, and like you said earlier, breaking the silence is about saving lives and sometimes saving our own lives. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to, yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been uh, holed up with their partners during this time. And there has been, we've learned more about each other maybe than ever. 
And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to this need for us to not just come out to ourselves and speak the truth about who we are, but also to share that, to express that, to allow it to be seen and held and witnessed by our partner, by our, by the loved ones in our lives. There's still so much fear about coming out, fear of rejection. And it's even harder for men around mental health uh, because there's these terrible stereotypes about men's emotions and what's appropriate emotions for men to express. And this idea that crying is weakness and that vulnerability is weakness. It's a toxic masculinity. And so I appreciate that for many couples, and it doesn't have to be gender specific, um, whatever your gender is, um, there is tremendous fear of rejection and a fear that it will end the marriage, a fear that it'll decrease your worth and your value, a fear of disappointing your partner. There's so much pressure to keep it all together and keep going and powering through. And there's a fear that if you release a little bit of this, it's like a dam that will break and flood. You know, like how can, if I start talking, how can I stop this? And so we're afraid of ourselves. And so talking about this helps give people reassurance that it's not anything to be afraid of. The fear is um, giving this power. The silence gives the power to the sphere and it, the silence causes further isolation. And so showing people how you have these conversations is huge. And that's what I hope my book will do. It'll show us how we have these conversations and that it's nothing to be afraid of. And that in fact, there's part of our humanity that is created in the image of God, that we will have a deeper sense of connection to. There's deep wisdom and deep knowing when we acknowledge and embrace the shadow parts of us that we are so afraid of. And what I've seen in my marriage and other marriages that go there, that do this painful work, is that it can make the covenant and the blessed union even richer and bring you closer together and strengthen the bond because you're developing a deeper sense of trust. And it's what I learned with my own journey with my father's mental health challenges about um, acknowledging the truth and being real about the truth allowed me to have a profound sense that I was loved for who I was and not for who I was pretending to be. And being real about this in the church context allowed me to be real about who I was as a pastor and a person and that the church would love me for who I really was and not who I was pretending to be. So likewise in our marriages, when we get real with ourselves and our partners about who we are, uh, we can experience a profound sense of freedom that will help us go on to that next level of self-realization and thriving. Now, a person is not their illness, so you don't all of a sudden become this depressed person, but you become a person that has gained deep wisdom and experience from your depression. 
that can then help you understand in greater uh, depth the human condition. Pastor Sarah, I'd like to uh, get theological with you for just a minute, if, if that's okay. Uh, listening to you, and this is such a wonderful conversation and a validating conversation as someone who has, as Martin Laird describes depression, the uninvited guest, as someone who has played host to the uninvited guest on, on a number of occasions in my life journey. Um, so much of this does you know, strike very close to home. You know, and your and your comment about men not wanting to appear weak or vulnerable, and that crying is a sign of weakness. I all of those scripts I, I have received. My father was an Air Force pilot. I grew up in a in a Protestant church with very traditional God images, and so that leads to to what I wanted to talk about is that it seems that especially those of us who maybe grew up with traditional God images, that our spirituality is juridical rather than therapeutic. In other words, we are not taught to come to God as the great healer, but to come to God as the judge. You know, I, I had a traffic ticket a couple, uh, two years ago now, you know, and when I went to court, you know, I put on my best suit, you know, I got a haircut, my best behavior. I still still had a $300 fine, but I tried, you know. And isn't that what we do? When we go to court, we wear the mask. You were talking earlier about the problem is our children see us masked. And I wonder for those of us who, who, count, who came up through traditional religion, if that problem doesn't begin with the stories we tell about God. Now, I don't expect the four of us in this one conversation to be able to, you know, change Christianity, although wouldn't it be nice, but I'm wondering if you could offer, you know, especially for those of us who are lay people, how do we begin to kind of deconstruct the judging God and try to create this space for a spirituality of healing rather than a spirituality of you'd better be on your best behavior or else. The beauty of faith communities is that theology is the work of the people and liberation movements have embraced this and we've learned so much from the people who create theology themselves. And so the people in the disabilities community have given us a great gift in the work of liberation theology, disability theology. The Disabled God is an incredible work of theology by Nancy Iceland, who talks about God being disabled. And she bases that on the witness of Christ after the crucifixion and resurrection appearing to the disciples disabled with disabling injuries still on his body. And so thinking about the disabled God opens up new opportunities to embrace a theology of liberation, wholeness, and healing. It, in addition to that, this understanding of being made in God's image, that someone born with Down syndrome is made in God's image, that someone who develops bipolar disorder is made in God's image. And so what does it mean to think about God having Down syndrome? To think about God knowing what it's like to have bipolar disorder. For God to be intimately connected to our human condition, our human experiences. 
And so this is very life-giving to me, and it's very much liberating to understand that God is on this journey with us and that in ourselves and in our siblings in Christ, we can see God's image. That in my husband who lives with depression, in myself who lives with post-traumatic stress disorder, the image of God is present. And that God is part of this healing journey of wholeness. And the deeper I come to that understanding, the deeper the sense of being God's vessel, that God is not somehow separate or apart from this human experience. Such a powerful, wonderful answer. And I, I, I thank you for that. And I, I think what I find too, is I'm thinking about the answer you just gave to Carl's question, and then the answer previously to Cassidy's, where we were talking about silence, and it, and you were talking about the pregnant pause. It's interesting to me that the silence was the breaking of the silence, because I really appreciate that. As this podcast is about silence and every from every angle, and to think that allowing the the safe space to be real, as you said, and Allowing what you just said here is allowing God to reveal God's self as God in every manifestation that could be and not come with this presupposed idea of who we are, of what God is, is show up surprised and be quiet and listen and let God say you are loved. And it just is profoundly beautiful that this work can do that what looks like should be, quote, disabling is anything but. I want to add about the judging God, and and I think that is really important to name that and how this idea of God as the judge contributes to stigma and shame. And I would say the death of so many people who are humiliated into the sense of... um, being rejected by God, which breaks my heart. Um, But we do know that many people who live with depression and who are very committed Christians turn that idea of a judging God, they internalize it, and so they judge themselves. This is self-stigma, which is profound. And I I live with self-stigma, so I know what it's like. It's why it takes so long to break the silence and to come out to oneself because of the stigma and that we internalize that judging God, which makes this work liberative and healing is to silence the voice of the judging God so that we can hear the voice of the God within us, the God among us the God of our woundedness, the God of our disabilities, the God of our true humanity. As someone who uh, struggles with uh, self-judgment, um, I, I hear that 100%, and I have to constantly remind myself that good theology will remind me what you just said. I, I, a priest friend of mine once said to me when I was doing spiritual direction years ago, and we were talking about self-judgment, and he said to me, he said, Kevin, Christ, he goes, I know this is going to sound horrible in the beginning, but let me say it. 
And he said, Christ came to the sinners, correct? And I said, yes. And then he said, why? And there was this long, long pause. And I gave some answer about some theological answer. And he said, well, isn't he coming to love and to heal and not to judge? And just that little simple message of Christ wants to come and heal and be with you broke open so much for me. Um, this was years and years and years ago, but it was so powerfully moving that it's that that was the first time someone had silenced the judging God for me. I, I think there's also a dimension I want to tap into here because I think there can also be a problem and it can also be problematic to look at God as healer. Um, in the instance of, of mental health, um, that can prevent us from seeking therapeutic help or medication or whatever we might need. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, to the problem of, of viewing God as healer. I would uh, say that your question assumes that we understand God as acting alone. And so in my experience of God as healer, it's God in partnership with the human family that you know we can embrace god is a great physician and who embodies that who are the hands and feet of the healing god for each one of us and it might be you and your psychiatrist and your pastor and your neighbor who brings over cookies you know that are amazing and your dog who provides emotional support and your nephew who you climb trees with um, we are all called to be healers and advocates for each other. And so I very much support this idea of God as the healer and us as the beloved community, as a body of Christ, manifesting that healing power and energy for one another. I love that. Thank you so much. This is the end of the first part of a two-part interview. The conclusion to this interview will be released in our next episode. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.